0: I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Shortly after birth, Kim Nye's first daughter, Tessa, began suffering seizures though Nye gave birth to other children without significant health issues, when her fourth child, Colton, was born, he had the same symptoms as his oldest sister. The two siblings were eventually diagnosed with an ultra-rare genetic disorder, and Nye began the Test Research Foundation. The organization has been pursuing a gene therapy, which a biopharmaceutical company is now working to develop. In the second part of our four-part series on gene therapies, we spoke to Nye about her own journey to becoming a rare disease advocate, how a gene therapy fit into her organization's research agenda, and the considerations she's weighing before dosing her children with an experimental gene therapy. Kim, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're gonna talk about your children, their rare condition, and your efforts to find a treatment for them. You were in graduate school at Oxford when your child Tessa was born. Shortly after birth, she began having seizures. What happened? Uh,
1: Tessa was born seemingly healthy. I had a normal full-term pregnancy. I was actually induced because I was past my due date um, and then ended up having a C-section after a long and unsuccessful labor. So it wasn't the easiest delivery, (laughs) but Tessa looked really good. She had good APGAR scores. And I went back to my hospital room with what we all assume was a, a healthy baby girl. Um, But she started having trouble doing, you know, baby things, she started having trouble breastfeeding and she turned blue during her very first bath. Um, When she was around one day old, they transferred her to the NICU, the intensive care unit uh, for observation. And by about 36 hours old, it was clear that there was some sort of problem. And so all the the poking and prodding began all the blood tests and EEGs and MRIs and spinal taps. Honestly, it was, uh, it was pretty intense and, and really confusing. We were told at some point that she was having fits. Um, and it turns out that fits is the British word for seizures. But we still didn't know why. Um, they decided that it was probably a some sort of stroke. And that was really the first of many misdiagnoses um, along the way for our family.
0: This is... Uh an incredible moment to live through when your, your first child is born. It's a very joyous experience. At what point did you realize something was wrong?
1: Yeah, I think I was in shock, honestly, in the beginning. I mean, I I think, um, I mostly remember my husband's response. He wasn't there when the doctor told me that he thought that Tessa had had a stroke. So I was the one who had to deliver the news to my husband. Um, My husband's a big guy, you know, he's like six foot three, 250 pounds, former college football player. And I just remember that when I told him the news, he dropped to his knees and let out this sound of, of pain and sadness that I don't think I had ever heard him make before. And I think that's when it really started to sink in that we might have a child with significant problems.
0: What did the doctors tell you?
1: Well, honestly, as the days and weeks passed, all the tests started to come back really normal. She had a normal brain MRI, normal blood work. Eventually, we were able to stop the seizures with medications. And the doctors thought there was a really good chance that Tessa was going to be just fine. Unfortunately, that's not how things turned out. Um, We ended up spending 10 years trying to figure out what was going on with Tessa. And we traveled around the U.S. seeing, you know, the best of the best doctors. Um, At this point, Tessa was having hundreds of seizures a day. You just have to really let that sink in, like hundreds of seizures per day. <laughs> um, we were spending you know weeks at a time in the hospital and we tried every available treatment and we pursued every genetic test. Unfortunately, genetic testing for epilepsy was really in its infancy when Tessa was little. Uh, and we started to realize that this disorder was so much more than epilepsy. By elementary school, it was really clear that Tessa was behind her peers significantly. She only spoke a few words. She was dependent on adults for the most basic activities like bathing and eating.
0: You gave birth to two more daughters who were without any serious health problems. And then your fourth child, Colton, was born. You found there were problems shortly after his birth. What happened?
1: So Tessa was almost 10 when Colton was born and Colton was born around uh, two in the afternoon. And by two in the morning, I was really convinced he was having seizures. It was was really like the worst kind of deja vu. Um, He was having trouble breastfeeding. He was turning a bit blue. Um, I called in the nurse and she initially thought he was fine, but honestly, this was my fourth baby. (laughs) So I was pretty positive that something was wrong. And they kindly took him to the nursery for observation. And within about half an hour, he was transferred to the NICU An EEG was ordered, but I already knew what was going on. Um, My husband was at home with our three girls and I called him around three in the morning and he was asleep, but he knew something was wrong the minute he heard my voice. Telling him that Colton was having seizures was the hardest thing I've ever had to do so far in my life uh, because we both knew exactly what it meant. We both knew that our little boy was not going to be okay And, you know, you have that moment where hope turns into sadness, where we went from dreaming of his future, you know, college graduation and of our future grandchildren to knowing that he would likely never talk or live independently.
0: How were the kids ultimately diagnosed?
1: Yeah, so um, Colton had exome testing done when he was still in the NICU, and that's a test that looks at a, a large amount of genetic information. Um, he was only a few days old at the time, and we, we had to wait many weeks for the results of the testing to come back. Um, but his exome testing was actually normal, just like his big sisters. So we reached out to the NIH Undiagnosed Diseases Program and to our geneticists at Stanford and, and really to every researcher that we had talked to over the course of my daughter Tessa's uh, diagnostic odyssey. And we really still couldn't find an underlying cause Um, but my husband and I went to high school with a guy named Matt Wilsey, and he had also had a long diagnostic odyssey with his daughter, Grace. So when Matt heard about Colton, he reached out and asked if he could introduce us to the researcher who had found a diagnosis for Grace. And, And that researcher is Matthew Bainbridge. So Matthew and I, had a long conversation about Tessa and Colton. And I remember some of his final questions to me, it was along the lines of, if you had to put a percentage on your certainty that Tessa and Colton have the same thing, what would that percentage be? And I remember telling him that I was 100% confident that Tessa and Colton had the same thing. And so Matthew got to work analyzing the genetic data of our whole family really. And um, he called me back a few months later with some big news um, and that big news was that Matthew had succeeded where no one else uh, had, and he had found compound heterozygous SLC13A5 mutations uh, in Tessa and Colton. So we finally had a real diagnosis.
0: How did that change things for you? Did, was that a, a relief or was it a, the beginning of a new wave of anxiety?
1: That's a really good question. So it was a relief. We, we wanted to know what was going on. We were, we were losing our daughter, Tessa, to this unknown entity. And so having, you know, a, you can't cure something that you don't know. You, you can't even, uh, we had tried all the standard epileptic treatments and that clearly wasn't um, helping her in a significant way. So we held out hope that having a real diagnosis would be the beginning towards, you know, better treatments for her. Um, But I I have to admit, even though I had been looking for this diagnosis for a decade, I cried a lot on that day of diagnosis. And it felt there there was some sort of hope in the unknown and some sort of hope in the undiagnosed. And and for my son, I kind of thought if we can just control the seizures, maybe he'll have a better outcome than his big sister. But somehow having a genetic etiology for everything that was going on um, took away some of that hope um, in in my mind and in my heart. Um, But it, it also opened up this whole new path this path towards you know precision medicine and treatments and cures that we wouldn't have had otherwise
0: they both have slc 13a5 deficiency <laughs> one of the things you quickly learn with a name like that is it generally means not a lot's known about the condition what's so, known about the deficiency today
1: yeah so true these um you know we have these alphabet soup diseases now, or or these things that look like flight numbers instead of of disorders. But um, SLC13A5 deficiency is also known as a citrate transporter disorder. And it is ultra rare, but we do now have more than 100 kids and adults in our, our database. And the story begins the same way for all of our families. Affected babies begin having seizures within hours of birth for no apparent reason. Just like with TESSA, these seizures often remain hard to control, especially in the early years. And the kids go on to have significant um, movement disorders. They have good receptive language, they can understand what's being said, but they have little to no speech. We do have adults um, in our cohort who are even in their 50s, um, but they are fully dependent on caregivers. And we also have a lot of families who have lost children to seizure complications. This is an inherited recessive disorder. So lots of families have two affected children just like mine.
0: You mentioned that Tessa was having hundreds of seizures a day. What's it like to have two children with a condition like this? What's it like in the household? Does it, does it become a crisis when a seizure occurs? Is it stressful or disruptive or does it ever become routine?
1: For 15 and a half years, we had hundreds of seizures occurring daily in our house. Uh, so the small seizures, they really do become routine. Um, you know, by the time Tessa was maybe 10 years old, we had stopped counting those small seizures. For the first 10 years, we literally counted every seizure that she had in a day. It somehow felt meaningful and important, and, and that stopped at some point, and um, but I, the, the stress definitely increased on days when her seizures would start to cluster or when they would last a little bit longer because we all knew that a big seizure was coming. And honestly, I don't think we will ever get used to the big seizures. With every big seizure, I worry that this will be the one that finally takes Tessa's life or does her brain irreparable harm. And I still find myself, like when Tessa sleeps in a little bit too late, I I worry that she's had a seizure in her sleep and suffocated in her pillow. Um, Thankfully, Colton has remained mostly seizure-free. When he does have a seizure, it's incredibly stressful just because it's so rare. You know, ambulances are called, medications are increased. It, It feels like a real emergency. And what makes our life so stressful is really all the daily battles, the battle to get Tessa and Colton fed and dressed and bathed, um, sleep and behaviors are a problem, and there are so many appointments and decisions to be made, you know, physical therapy, speech therapy, school IEPs, doctor's appointments, insurance battles, um, it all comes with a lot of paperwork and a lot of time invested. And, and I know that my kids are, are super lucky to have these services, but there's no question that they add to the, the stress and the disrupt, disruption in our, our family life. And I think about our two healthy girls, Lily and Maggie. You know, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be them and have this be their childhood. Um, I can't imagine that combination of, um, of love, but also embarrassment that, that must be involved in having, you know, two disabled siblings. And I'm, I'm extremely proud of them. I think they have uh, an empathy and a maturity beyond their years because of what our home life is like. Um, but they also live in a house that's under extreme stress, and I, I find myself doing daily check-ins to make sure they have a time to to just be kids. Um, and even for Tessa and Colton, I try to remember that they are kids first, and you know, a diagnosis and and um, a medical con- medical condition way farther down the list.
0: You launched the Tess Research Foundation. Tess is actually an acronym for treatment for epilepsy and symptoms of. SLC13A5. As a parent of two children with a genetic condition, how do you think about research strategies your organization pursues?
1: I think the first step is just to think about the end goal and work backwards from there. So our goal is to find treatments and cures for kids that are suffering right now. Um, There is immense strategy and immense urgency to our research because the disorder is so newly discovered, there was really nothing known about it when we started our nonprofit five years ago. So we got to work. We created you know, animal and cellular models that researchers could use to study the disorder. Um, we started to get our patient population ready for clinical trials with things like registries and natural history studies. We started hosting research roundtables to bring together all the, the key stakeholders Um, Brenda Porter, our neurologist and and Matthew Bainbridge, who found these mutations in my kids, um, they head our scientific advisory board. Um, But we've also added new members to that advisory board who have expertise in in key areas that are involved in this disorder. We give out funding through um, grant cycles, which has hopefully helped encourage investigators to ask and answer some of these key questions about uh, mechanism and some of the more basic research and we really hope to de-risk certain projects so that someone, you know, in industry or pharmaceutical or biotech company will come and be interested in them. Um, so we hope that our our funding is uh, meaningful, but we also hope that it serves as you know seed funding so that researchers can get initial data um, and then apply for other funding sources like uh, the NIH. We certainly encourage collaborations and publications um test research foundation is currently a a chan zuckerberg initiative rare as one project grantee which has added you know some extra momentum and and honestly some extra strategy to our research and helped us think you know what are our goals in the the near to medium term
0: where do gene therapies fit into your thinking
1: well, when we first started Test Research Foundation, I was honestly really hesitant to jump into gene therapy. I felt like gene therapy had been on the cusp for decades, but with not a lot of success. And so I thought that drug repurposing was probably our, our best bet. However, um, that started to change You know, a few years ago, we started to hear more and more about gene therapies that were making it into clinical trials. Um, I would, I would say that the neuromuscular world is way ahead of the epilepsy world when it comes to precision medicine. And so we started to see, you know, the successes um, in area, like with spinal muscular atrophy treatments. And um, I started to spend more time strategizing with our scientific advisors about, you know, a potential gene therapy for SLC 13A5 deficiency. Our disease is honestly, a, a near perfect candidate for a, a gene therapy because it's monogenic, meaning there's only one gene involved. It's a loss of function and it, it just happens that the gene is small enough to fit on currently available viral vectors. Um, so in 2017, my whole family hopped on a plane to North Carolina and um, we went to meet a gene therapy expert named Steve Gray. And after you know, lots of behind the scenes, phone calls and research and strategizing with our test research foundation team, we had decided that, that he was the guy for us. And so uh, we sat around a table with Steve and and the we as my husband and my four kids, Uh, we sat there with them. And and I simply said, you know, would you be willing to create a gene therapy for SLC 13A5 deficiency? And he said, yes.
0: From a, a parent perspective, what makes this an attractive therapeutic route for you?
1: Well, what's maddening about current treatments for SLC13A5 epilepsy is that we're really only treating the symptoms. You know, We're using seizure medications to stop the seizures and we're putting in thousands of hours of, of therapy um, to help with you know, the movement disorder, but we're never really getting at the underlying cause. So what's extremely attractive about gene therapy is that it aims to address the underlying cause. You know, For instance, my kids, they can't transport citrate, and a gene therapy would help them transport more citrate.
0: Obviously, there's not a gene therapy currently available, so if your children were to access one, it would most likely be through a clinical trial. What kinds of questions or concerns would you have before allowing them to participate?
1: Um, My daughter Tessa has been in several small molecule clinical trials before. Um, So we've had these conversations in our house about clinical trials in the past. And we have some idea of, you know, what the the drawbacks can be and what the the hopeful elements can be. But honestly, a gene therapy clinical trial feels really different. Um, I would absolutely want to know that the gene therapy is both safe and effective. Uh, I don't think any parent enrolls their child in a clinical trial because they want them to, to be a guinea pig, right? We, we enroll our kids in these clinical trials because our kids are really sick, and there is a hope that the clinical trial will give our children more healthy years and, and more opportunities.
0: Depending on the vector used, there may only be a single chance to get the dose right since it may not be possible to redose a child. Would this affect your willingness to participate in the study before that was determined?
1: This is a really real consideration for our patient population. Um, Some disorders, especially when there's one mutated copy of a gene and one healthy copy of a gene, those diseases are more likely to be candidates for uh, like an antisense um, illegal nucleotide or an ASO. And, and those can be redosed often. Um, but because our disorder is recessive, meaning that both copies of the SLC13A5 gene have mutations, um, a, a more traditional gene therapy using a viral vector is our best option. This. Gene therapy would be given in a single dose and and likely in the spinal column. Um, If the dose is too low to be effective, that means that it could not currently be repeated. There's also no removing a gene therapy. Uh, Better therapies, I'm sure, and hoping (laughs) will come along in the next decade and so, but it's really impossible to predict. Uh, This may be the one shot that my kids have. Um, Gene therapies, are likely most effective when given as early as possible in the course of a disease. So time does matter here and and waiting decades may have significant, very significant disadvantages even if uh, gene therapies are redosable a decade or two from now. Um, Without a true precision medicine treatment, I know that the future is is not going to be a happy one or a bright one for my kids. So, So time is not on our side.
0: I'm imagining that the known patient population for this condition is so small right now that it would be near impossible to engage a a pharmaceutical company in developing a therapy. What's the economics of pushing this forward for you?
1: Yeah, you know, we are lucky that there is a company that is pushing this forward for us. So um, initially, this was a project that was. funded uh, entirely by test research foundation. So um, in gosh, just earlier this year, a company called Tasha stepped in and um, announced that they would be supporting our gene therapy for SLC 13A5 deficiency.
0: How were you able to engage them to do that?
1: Um, well, it, it's really all a testament to the brilliance of Steve Gray and Rachel Bailey. Um, so Steve is the researcher that we went and asked to, um, to make this gene therapy. And Rachel Bailey uh, was his former postdoc and now has her own lab at UT Southwestern. And she has really um, taken on this gene and this gene therapy. And um, Tasha saw what Steve Gray and Rachel Bailey and Berge Winassian and and the, the gene therapy team at UT Southwestern were doing and they wanted to be a part of it. So they really stepped in to create a funding pipeline um, for the gene therapies coming out of that program. And um, we are lucky enough to be included in them. Um, And although these are not um, N of one populations, these are bigger than that. There are N of one um, drugs being made, but this is not that situation, but we will fall into that rare or even ultra rare uh, category.
0: How are Tessa and Colton doing today?
1: So Tessa is now 16, and she is a severely delayed young woman. Um, she is in a special education high school program. Um, she understands language, and she can read it and write at uh, maybe around a first grade level, but she can only say a handful of words. She uses a device like an iPad to communicate. Um, I think Tessa is a real testament to why an accurate genetic diagnosis is so important, because... After 15 years and literally hundreds of thousands of seizures, um, Tessa has been seizure-free for 17 months. And this is thanks to data from other families with SLC13A5 epilepsy. Our neurologist, Dr. Porter, she started to see that there were three medications that families with children who were seizure-free tended to be using. And so we revisited these medications in Tessa and and amazingly her seizures stopped. And I'm very aware that this seizure freedom may not last and that we are just covering up uh, one symptom of this disease. But honestly, even a year of respite from from her truly unrelenting epilepsy feels miraculous. And I I don't even think anyone on our care team thought it was a possibility at this point to stop Tessa's seizures. So that is an amazing step forward for us. Colton is now seven, and he is still mastering the art of walking. (laughs) He has a walker and a wheelchair, uh, but he often uses both of them and insists on trying to walk independently, even though it means falling down really a lot. He's a kid who just gets right back up. He's he's pretty incredible and inspiring. Um, He only has a few words, but he's a clever little guy. If you saw him, I think you'd say that he was trapped in a body that just refused to do what he wants it to do. And this frustrates him and it frustrates everyone around him. He, um, he has enviously long eyelashes and he's about the most social kid in town. Uh, he really has a great smile and honestly, he is so worth fighting for.
0: Kim Nye, founder and president of the TESS Research Foundation. Kim, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you.